Welcome to Parenting Refreshed, an original podcast from UNICEF that explores the impact of the COVID pandemic on parents, caregivers, and children. From mental health, education, and technology to climate change, immunization, war, and the health issues of tomorrow. Each episode features experts in that field informing us about the latest information that science and experience has to offer. That is why UNICEF Parenting brings together some of the world's leading experts to share facts, helpful tips, and practical guidance. Information that parents can trust to help give their children the best start in life. Head to unicef.org forward slash parenting. Today, we're with Judith Oconquo, discussing the role of artificial intelligence in the lives of children, why it's not well understood and how it makes decisions, and tips for staying safe online. So let's meet her. My name is Judith Oconquo. I am the founder of Emissy 3D. We are an ecosystem developer for the extended reality technologies that's augmented virtual and mixed reality across the African continent. I have been a huge advocate for making sure that we have access to these technologies on the African continent, and even more importantly, that we're able to acquire the skills and knowledge so that we can create the solutions we need for ourselves. Talking to Judith, is Professor Sonia Livingstone. Hello, I'm Sonia Livingstone. I'm a Professor of Social Psychology at the London School of Economics and Political Science. So I've been doing research for a long time about how families are using digital technologies and how it's changing. I hear from parents all kinds of concerns and worries, but also many hopes and fears. So let's start by looking at the technological landscape in a world changed by the pandemic. As we all know, during the pandemic, we saw education devastated in ways that were completely unprecedented. It did mean, of course, that we moved towards digital much, much more rapidly than we otherwise would have. This has in some ways accelerated our engagements with technology but it has also exacerbated the digital divide for a lot of other people. There was the very real challenge, particularly where I was spending most of my time during the pandemic in Lagos and Nigeria, where a lot of people were just cut off from that because of infrastructural challenges that meant they could not access it. Sonia, do you want to add anything to this? My focus was on digital technologies. So we heard from children in many different countries Kind of what you just said, that it was the moment when people realised the technologies were their route to life, their route to learning, their route to uh, staying in touch with each other, to family connections, to health, getting health information, to being able to work. But something else we heard from children that quite a lot about inequalities, about difficulties of access, difficulties of 
of connectivity. There was a sense that the world had sort of pivoted online. And I think lots of parents really wanted to support their children in this. But of course, they were, you know, very unequally positioned. And for some, it was all about getting online. And for others, it was all about, you know, making use of the the latest um, exciting technologies to build new opportunities. The risks and the opportunities really go together. Parents would you know, find ways of helping their children get access for their education, for learning. But then the children would report that things were happening that made them feel unsafe. Mm-hmm. Because once you get access, you know, you get access in ways that can put you at risk at the same time as you need to, to do your education. And something else we heard from children that uh, around the pandemic was... A lot of parents still had that idea that the technologies were something you should use for useful things like learning, but everything else is not really so important. But for the children, getting access to the technology to stay in touch with their friends, to to know what was happening, to feel part of their own world, that was just so important. And and they were kind of struggling with their parents who were saying, ah, but that's too much screen time. Whereas for the children, this was this was a you know, being alive in the world and connected to to what mattered to them. What you've just described really echoes some of the experiences I had as well. Most of the families that I interact with in Lagos, you know, there's a real emphasis on education and, you know, um, and on schooling and all in parallel to that was that there were some organizations putting out content that was educational, but also supporting play more than sort of like core mm-hmm. school. And, and this was happening with some immersive technology. So for example, a company like Google started creating 3D viewing options for, for animals. So you could see, you know, an augmented reality like tiger in your living room, that sort of thing mm-hmm. that was then giving both parents and children the opportunity to engage and I'm wondering, in your experience, did you, did you see anything like that, where that tension was alleviated a little bit by parents and children coming together to use the technology more socially? Oh, I, absolutely. Lots of ways. And that was one of the, you know, the positives. Mm-hmm. We were doing research actually during the pandemic about play. And of course, we had to interview families online. And so we saw some really lovely examples, often from, yeah, like the kind of theatre groups or youth groups, using the potential of technology to bring people together playfully. You know, kids were kind of playing with Zoom. They were going upside down and they were finding ways of going in and out of the screen and and playing with their parents. They're playing hide and seek with Zoom. They might be connected with distant relatives and they would play a game of cards together. So it felt a little artificial, you know, how people had to kind of work it out. But then I think it became very sociable. People became very aware that actually children are really keen to stay in touch with their cousins, with their aunts and uncles, with their grandparents, as well as their friends. We sometimes talk, especially about teenagers, as if they just want to kind of go off and be on their own. But actually, they were very motivated to find ways that suited them, that connected them with their parents and with their wider family. What you've described, I think, so perfectly illustrates a lot of the engagements that I had as well or or got to hear about from different families where there was this experimentation, this play, this new way of 
of being and engaging that was facilitated by technology. Mm. Can you speak a little bit more about what you might have discovered when it comes to safety for children online? I think in terms of some of the content risks, there's been a lot of work on making age-appropriate filters for children. Mm-hmm. You know, people were kind of breaking into online conversations, weren't they? And no one knew who they were and they could be disruptive or mm-hmm. they could be dangerous. So even within the time of the pandemic, quite a lot of things happened fast. And I think parents learnt quite fast. It does sometimes feel with children like, you know, you have to wait for things to go wrong and then people realise and then a bit too late they they put some better practices in place and the needs of children don't always come first in the eyes of those who you know have the power to kind of make things work better and now there are some interesting questions really about what are the safe ways in which children can use the internet but also explore so going back to the the project I just described about play, we've mm-hmm. been trying to invite companies and parents and others to think, how can children take some of the risks offline? How can they take them online? You know, children that are used to getting lost in the when they go out of the house or sometimes, or they might run across a road after a ball or they might okay. jump over a fence and go somewhere they're not meant to. I mean, we worry about it when they do those things, but we also kind of know that's what growing up involves. It involves taking some of your own risks and becoming a bit resilient because we can't protect our children all the way up to 18. But I think online children do need a bit of that experimental space and mm-hmm. when they're teenagers they even need to take some risks so they can work out for themselves what's safe and what's okay for them. That's a fantastic point Sonia. That brings me to the central topic for us today which is artificial intelligence which plays such a huge role in, in digital spaces. Mm. If we were asked what is an artificial intelligence in describing it, I would often go to to products, for example, right? Um, mm-hmm. Siri or Alexa, mm-hmm. and digital assistance that you might have with your devices. Mm-hmm. To what extent do you think that is shaping and influencing the way parents are thinking about technology when it comes to their children? I don't know that parents are that attuned to the ways in which artificial intelligence is becoming everywhere. Mm-hmm. at home, schools, public spaces. I think when I listen to parents make those decisions about you know, whether to get a, a certain kind of toy that might include some artificial intelligence or when they think about how facial re- recognition technologies are being used in some of our public spaces or in some of our schools mm-hmm. or the ways in which data is being collected from children. You know, artificial intelligence runs on data. The joy of having Alexa in your house and, you know, isn't it funny when the child asks her questions? Mm -hmm. And then I find with when talking to parents that suddenly they'll kind of flip into a a sense of panic and anxiety Mm -hmm. that data is being taken from their children all the time which they don't have any access to. It's not clear to them who's making the decisions and what decisions about perhaps uh, what educational opportunities the child might be offered or what kind of products might be marketed to them or what content might come to them on their social media feed. Mm. 
these technologies are getting kind of embedded into people's everyday lives that I think a lot of parents feel sort of fascinated but also quite overwhelmed because they can't see it and they can't touch it and they can't stop it and they don't know who to complain about it to. What you've just described just really brings home the the frustration that I see so many people have when they're engaging with technology. I just think about the ways in which technology has been made non-accommodating when it comes to protecting yourself. One example mm. I often think about is the fact that the data that's being gathered from your from your systems, mm. which you've just referenced, usually the terms and conditions or the lists that you have to uncheck if you don't want them running on your device mm. is reams and reams of pages, which I think most people tend to scroll past as quickly as possible. I mean, it's, it's, no, it's, it's absolutely. No, there's been some, it's impossible to read. But I, I would add to that, Judith, I think it's not only impossible for parents to read and understand, let alone their children. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, even if you've understood all of that, even if you take the time and read it, all, there's kind of nothing you can really do with that information. You know, okay, so you read it, but then yes. if you want the service, they're still going to take your data. And if you say no to taking yes. the data then you don't get the service, they're not really being asked for their consent. It's kind of not a genuine exchange in which the company explains and the people can make a choice because it's they've got to take it. Yeah. I think that's what people are, are thinking when they click through. They feel a bit powerless. Mm -hmm. So they'll just kind of go along with it and maybe nothing bad will happen. And that uncertainty about, you know, is anything bad going to happen? When will it happen? How will I even know? You know, it's quite unclear to parents what the consequences are of both the data being collected but also the the way artificial intelligence processes that data to make um, decisions in the future. I love that phrase you use Sonia maybe nothing bad will happen because I think that shapes so much of of, mm. of the way we approach things especially when we're overwhelmed uh, as I think so many people have been um, in the last few years. Mm. So you, you've talked about the fact, is it really constant? Because if you want the service, you're, you're going to kind of like tick the box anyway. Mm. For me, what that brings up are, are questions around like, so what should we be doing mm. about that? Mm. Who should be doing something about that? Mm. How do we make mm. sure that we do have a choice? Yes, I think parents are thinking about it, but they don't have because some parents know a lot about technology and they have they have many yes. complex views. But I think generally parents are worrying about other things. They're worrying about their income and their work and their children's mm -hmm. study, everyone being, you know, reasonably happy and problems being dealt with and making sure that their children will get um, their exams and get a job in the future. So I think, you know, there's there's plenty of things to be for parents to be worrying about as well as or ahead of reading complicated legal terms and conditions. And I think that's pretty low on the agenda, even though it is a genuine concern. And what parents say to me is either they want the government to do something about it, or they think companies should choose to do something about it. So to make it clearer to parents and to children how how the technology is working so that they can understand and offer them a genuine choice. I mean, they think it will be in the in the company's interest to do that. But they also think of the organisations they are more familiar with. So they would, you know, they might like the health clinic to explain how their children's health data is being used. And they'd like the school mm -hmm. to take responsibility for 
how educational technology operates and what data is taken from or, or how artificial intelligence is used in school. So, you know, these are the agencies that are often public agencies and parents trust the health service, they trust the doctor, they trust the school, they trust the local authorities. So they would like those folks also, I think, to sort of represent them, you know, make a make a joint complaint yes. on their behalf if they think that something's wrong or you know, they shouldn't be using facial recognition technologies in the street or they shouldn't be using, you know, they want to understand better how immersive technologies are used in school. But maybe most often they think um, the government should do something, they should regulate. You're listening to UNICEF Parenting Refreshed, a series of podcasts looking at different aspects of parenting in a world transformed by the COVID-19 pandemic. We're currently looking at parenting and technology with extended reality developer Judith Conquo and Professor of Social Psychology, Dr. Sonia Livingstone. We're going to be talking about how AI makes decisions and tips for keeping your family safe online. Just a reminder that if you're affected or curious about any of the issues we're discussing, then please head to unicef.org forward slash parenting for support, advice, and more podcast episodes like this one. So how does AI make decisions? I mean, I'm sure we hear about things like algorithms all the time, which, you know, decide things as varied as whether, for example, you're going to get your loan application approved or what ads your children see when they're on social media. Mm. It's all based off of data that is collected or that is fed into the algorithm. Now, you might have heard a lot of conversation going on about things like inherent bias when it comes to AI. One classic example used to be a few years ago, if you typed beautiful baby into a search engine, you would find Caucasian children coming up, the people who were training the, the models, the algorithms that would produce the information we're relying on a certain subset of data if we look at the general population in the world. Sonia, do you want to add anything to this? We get used to talking about the algorithms and the AI as if they are kind of have got a mind of their own and yes. as if we can't influence them. But, you know, they're all designed by people whose jobs it is to make sure that the right people get the right kind of health services. But they're also designed by companies who have, you know, who are concerned with their profits and who the data may also be used for advertising or marketing or other purposes. So, once the data gets collected, it goes in multiple directions and different kinds of organisations get involved in collecting it and making decisions based on it. It's those organisations, I think, that we can hold to account and say, you know, are you making biased decisions or do you discriminate against certain groups or, you know, show us how, how does it work? Explain how you, you make the decisions you do so that we can see that it's fair. The worry in a way is that the machine will take over, isn't it? But what we want to make sure is that there is independent 
and trusted organisations who are watching how these decisions get made and who can Mm -hmm. hold the companies or the other organisations to account if if it's not fair. Sonia, I listened to a talk you gave um, a little while ago where you were comparing the the number of children who had been online in 2000 um, versus what, I think the next statistic was from 2015. And what a jump that was. I believe it was something like 100 million to, to 2 billion. So what are you finding? Because my goodness, doesn't that give me pause? It's a huge jump. And we're now at the point where I won't say all children are online because, of course, they're not. Mm-hmm. But many children are finding ways to be online and connected at some time, somehow, whether it's by borrowing a device or connectivity in the in the bus or at school or in the library. It's becoming um, normal, let's say, to expect to have some kind of internet access, even though it remains difficult. And the other trend, I'd say, is that it's becoming more and more via a personal device. And in many parts of the world, internet access has been mobile first. In our, in our Global Kids Online study that we did at LSE with UNICEF, we found across many countries in the global south, mobile first is so important. That has been the story of much of the African continent Mm. where mobile technology has just completely transformed our engagement with the digital world. Can you tell us a little bit about what age we see children getting online more and more these days? I wish I could tell you more. We don't actually have good statistics around the world. Mm. The International Telecommunication Union is beginning to track this Mm -hmm. and we can see that In high-income countries, children are getting online now before their first birthday. In some way, someone will put a phone in their hands with a game or something to press and click. Of course, in middle and lower-income countries, it's often later. Mm -hmm. But we don't have good data, and this is one of my complaints. They want to know about adults because they can work, but children have got a bit forgotten about. And I think we do need to call for just understanding better how many children are online, what age, how it's changing and which children so that we understand better where those inequalities are that really can hold some children back. You make an excellent point, um, Sonia, really. We do need the data. And and it's funny because for me, um, even just with personal experience, I almost describe smartphones when, you know, uh, I'm engaging with families with young children as a digital pacifier. Mm. Because very quickly when the, the child is restless or, you know, uh, is going to cry the toddler, it's like, here's the mobile phone, or, or they're even reaching mm. for it instinctively. So mm. it would be fantastic to, to have that information. Mm. Let's sort of like dig um, a, a little bit more into what we know about children engaging. And I think one area that is is topical all the time now is social media, um, just because of the, the stories we see. Some of the organizations that we've talked about who are responsible for the the, inf- the data that's being gathered and the algorithms and what children are seeing have been put on the spotlight for some of the things that are being fed to our children via these platforms. What have you found in your research? One of the things about research that I love is you discover how many different ways people engage with technology. So, you know, just in the last few years, I've interviewed children who are really geeky and know a lot about technology and love it and they're into their 
games and their modifications of the games and their hacks, as they call it, and so on. Mm. And I've talked to other children who kind of, you know, take it or leave it. I mean, they come home, they play a football game with their friends, and then maybe they want to go off and run around outside or play with their dog or on Parenting for a Digital Future. We found patterns that sort of follow that, which is the ways parents try to encourage their children to use technology, to kind of learn more about it, to think of it as their own and something they can be walking knowingly into the future, making sure they're prepared for the future. And we see parents at other times resisting, like, oh, no, this is too fast. I'm losing what is my tradition. I'm losing what I value from the way I was brought up. And and very often we see parents um, kind of balancing those and trying to have a pathway to a digital future and those jobs that haven't been invented yet, as, as we're always hearing. But at the same time, they want to kind of keep their values and their ideas about parenting that, that technology can mm-hmm. seem to disrupt. So they're trying to sort of balance and keep an eye on it and watch how is their child developing and are they studying properly and are they sociable and are they uh, sleeping well and are they finding ways to be young citizens around technology really, you know, find some of the kind of the better things that technology can offer rather than just what social media pushes at them, just what... The big Mm -hmm. platforms say, you know, well, this is in our interest. This is profitable for us. So we want you to see it. I think parents and children sometimes have to work a bit harder to find some of the more interesting and more edgy and maybe more diverse kinds of things that are available online. Yes. (laughs) I just love the way you've described this. I particularly like the the points that, that you brought up from the book. I'm going to say to our audience, just pause a little bit because I'm going to bring in another issue that you touched on briefly before the break. And this was looking at regulation and who should be responsible for making sure that the data that's collected from, well, first of all, what data is collected from us and then what's being done with that data and what is fed to us as a result of what's done with that. Is it good? Is it not? How exactly should it come about? What have you found? It's quite a challenge to work out what regulation there is in, you know, the many different countries in the world. But I, mm-hmm. I do think that two of the things you mention are very much on the agenda. One is protecting children's data through data protection regulation, mm-hmm. trying to kind of share good ideas, trying to work out, you know, which model is best. And that's really about Governments regulating companies, but also regulating themselves. I mean, the mm-hmm. public sector also collects mm-hmm. data. And then the other thing is children's safety online. Uh, who should be keeping them safe online? And I would say there, there's a role for companies. There's a role for government regulation. And there's also a role for all those other organisations, the school, the health service, the community organisations who can kind of work because that's partly about hearing from children where they feel unsafe and working out what strategies can help them. So I'm actually a fan of regulation. I think the tech companies have had it their own way a bit too long, but I don't think regulation is the only thing. We do need parents to play their Mm -hmm. role. We do need schools to play their role and we need children to grow up resilient to some things at least you know kind of able to 
because they want to be agents, they want to be citizens in this new digital world. Indeed. Sort of like all parties playing their role. You you know the saying, it takes a village with regulation. I hear you when you say it's a good thing. I think that I approach it from the perspective of perhaps more what we've seen on the continent where, and I think this also holds in other parts of the world, where regulation is sometimes done where it's almost a cart before the horse without understanding Mm. when it comes to the technologies and then perhaps we run into some problems Mm. so i think perhaps it goes hand in hand with educating and awareness around the technologies Mm. so that regulation can be informed to make things better for all of us and our children no i completely agree with you regulation should be based on evidence regulation Mm -hmm. should be based on consulting with the people who are affected so that includes children and parents yes Um, and i would say that regulation needs to be done in ways that are accountable you know so someone is watching is it working has it thought about children's needs at the start Mm -hmm. have we got checks and balances to make sure that you know you can kind of alter things if it if if it's too heavy-handed there's also a lot of good experience in this space and a lot of ideas about how to do it well thank you thank you so much I know our time is up, but (laughs) I'd be remiss if we didn't have a a final word from you, Sonia. Um, So for parents who are listening to this today, what is the one thing that you would want them to take away um, when it comes to this whole sort of like, you know, conversation or experience of technology and their children? One thing Um, I (laughs) might say, don't panic. Yeah. Uh, ask your child what they're enjoying about it, what they're using it for, what they're getting out of it, what worries them, where they want help. Parents, when they're worried, often instinctively try to restrict online opportunities. If you restrict children, that they'll think it's unfair, they'll they'll get cross. What research shows is, you know, kind of positive parenting, enabling parenting, ways of communicating with their child and opening up ways for everyone to learn about this new technology it all works much better so I would say try not to say no try to find a way for yes to be good for everyone alongside your children you can learn so much educate yourself yeah it opens up a whole new world of possibilities Thank you so much, Sonia, for joining me. This has been such a fantastic discussion. Thank you, uh, Judith. It was a real pleasure. This podcast was produced by Ashley Clivery. Subscribe wherever you're hearing this so that you know when new episodes of Parenting Refreshed become available. Or head to the website for more information, unicef.org forward slash parenting. Whilst you're there, you'll also find other episodes in the series, including discussions around parenting and mental health. Mental health is not about feeling good. You're not mentally healthy because you feel good. The health issues of tomorrow. And yet we still very much operated in this pandemic as if we could exist with national policies as opposed to global ways of dealing with disease. And immunization. There are a lot of vaccines with good and new technologies nowadays that you can prevent several diseases in different ages. But for regret, there's no vaccine.